Hey everybody, good evening and welcome. Let's see, let me uh, just finish getting things set up here. Okay. I just have to arrange things on my screen. Right after I start, I always have to arrange things on the screen for the sake of the recording uh, for those who couldn't be here with us today. So anyway, thank you. Welcome for... Uh, no, wait. Welcome and thank you for coming. Um, I am uh, really glad you could join me on this, our first official session of our first official Mythgard Academy class. I know many of you were able to join me for the Two Towers class uh, in the late summer and early fall. And that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. That was kind of a, a, a Mythgard Academy preview. And here it is, uh, official. Uh, so uh, uh, so we're, we're delighted to be here. The Return of the King, of course, as you probably know, very narrowly won the election for the uh, first course of the Mythgard Academy. We will see, I think the, the electors will be going to work soon to uh, choose the... Uh, the next course uh, that we'll have, though this one is going to go, I, and as you see by the schedule, eight weeks. Uh, I figure we're going to go pretty much uh, to the to the holidays at the end of the year, and then uh, we'll begin our second class. I assume beginning of January. So, um, anyway, that should be that should be fun. Um, so, Return of the King. Uh, as uh, you guys know, we've been. Um, kind of flirting with the return of the king for a while now throughout the two towers class uh you guys were uh sort of continually tempting me to um uh to to uh, talk about the return of the king so i kept sort of going into the return of the king um and uh, it's fun to finally now turn to it um i want to um i want to well, what I want to talk about tonight, I've sort of been debating with myself, because there's something I've been really thinking about as I have been reading The Return of the King through this time, um, and I've decided that I'm going to go ahead and um, try to talk about it, um, but it's, I'm, I'm a little nervous about it, because the thing that I want to talk about is a thing which is famously difficult to talk about. Uh, and I'm quite afraid uh, that uh, I'm going to fail completely. But I'll give it a try anyway. Because what I want to talk about is matters of tone and style. One of the things that really struck me about The Return of the King as I was rereading it um, is what Tolkien does with the way that he frames the story and how he does the style. So I know, I uh, uh, see Mike Thurway is here, so I'm not going to be, um, uh, I'm not going to have to convince him to talk about uh, uh, style, I know. Uh, yes, Mike's, Mike's already uh, uh, excited about this. Um, but anyway, I, you know, so we're going to have a style time all day today. Um, what I want to be looking at is sort of how, the way in which Tolkien's, words, the way that he approaches the telling of the story, starting here in book five, I think really modulates into a different register. It's a register that he goes into a, on, on occasions. It's something that kind of bubbles through at moments uh, in The Fellowship of the Ring and in The Two Towers, or perhaps I should say in books one through four of The Lord of the Rings. But it's really here in force in The Return of the King. Um, he adopts this not even adopt isn't quite the right word, uh, but he uses uh, this 
this epic tone, his even his descriptions of things seem so often to have a really heavy symbolic uh, and archetypal weight, um, and it gives the whole story a kind of mythic force all the way through. Um, that it, again, that happens occasionally, and we were looking at some moments where these kinds of uh, these kind of mythic glimpses come through. We we're looking at that in the Two Towers class in the Return of the King. It's very pervasive, I think. Book five. Um, really, uh, really, really goes up a notch, I think, in that. Um, and so I want to look at how this happens. I want to I, I look at... So, so let me just start off by showing um, some examples of, uh, of, of how this works. Um, yeah, yeah. Nate says uh, one, of, it's, uh, one, one of his favorite aspects is how the style has changed. The formal language used by the characters, particularly those who could adapt to different situations, Gandalf and Aragorn in particular. Yes, I'm definitely going to be looking at uh, both Gandalf and Aragorn. Um, those are two, I mean, again, you think, especially because with them we have the contrast. We see them operating in this mode in The Return of the King, and we can remember, you know, we can remember Gandalf at Bilbo's party. We can remember, you know, Strider in the Inn at Bree. Um, and they're very different now. Um, it definitely works. Uh, works very differently. Um, yeah. So let's um, um, so I'll come back to some of your comments later. And again, as always, I have to apologize since I know that I'm not going to be able to get to everybody's comments tonight. There are there are uh, a lot of people here, which is great. Um, but it does mean that uh, you know I'm certainly not going to be able to um, address every comment and every question that everybody has. So I apologize in advance for that. If uh, though I will say at the beginning, um, well, first of all, I should say at the beginning, if you are new with us and you have never joined us before, please do uh, contribute. If I um, often, if I ask a question, I don't actually mean it as a rhetorical question. I, I very often will ask for your contributions or your thoughts about a particular passage. Um, and so please do uh, type those into your questions box there. I'll see them as soon as you type them in. Um, one thing that I would recommend in that is the the more succinct your comments could be, you know, the shorter they are, the easier it is for me to read them when I have a whole bunch of them. If you give me a huge long comment, I, I almost certainly won't have a chance to read them because I read quite slowly. So, um, so anyway, I just it's a little little sort of tip in advance there. Um, but uh, but please do uh, uh, feel free to contribute as we go. I I, uh, I always value your comments. Um, but as I say, my apologies if I'm not gonna if I don't. Uh, if I'm not able to get to all of them. However, if there's a, a not just a comment that you want to make about a passage we're talking about or something, but if there's a, a separate topic or an issue that you'd really like to talk about, um, sort of a totally different topic of conversation that you're hoping uh, that I will get to or turn to later on, um, if you could preface that comment with the word topic, uh, you know, topic colon, and tell me. That way I can sort of scan through and see those quickly if we have time during this session or if I want to do it later on um, in a Q&A session. So um, please do uh, please do take, uh, take note of that. Okay. Um, Okay, um, let's let's look at my first example. Of this sort of get a little bit more into what I'm talking about here with this uh, sort of the tone and the way this works. Here's Pippin and Gandalf arriving in Minas Tirith and going in to see Denethor for the first time. Already it seemed that word of their coming had gone before them, and at once they were admitted silently and without question. Quickly, Gandalf strode across the white-paved court. 
A sweet fountain played there in the morning sun, and a sward of bright green lay about it, but in the midst, drooping over the pool, stood a dead tree, and the falling drops dripped sadly from its barren and broken branches back into the clear water. Pippin glanced at it as he hurried after Gandalf. It looked mournful, he thought, and he wondered why the dead tree was left in this place where everything else was well tended. Seven stars and seven stones and one white tree. The words that Gandalf had murmured came back into his mind, and then he found himself at the doors of the great hall beneath the gleaming tower, and behind the wizard he passed the tall, silent door-wardens and entered the cool, echoing shadows of the House of Stone. Okay, first I want to look at that first paragraph, the description of the court um, as they see it. I say as they see it, primarily as Pippin sees it, of course. This chapter is told almost entirely uh, from Pippin, you know, with really, no, quite entirely from Pippin's point of view. Um, and uh, um, notice the, the, the sort of, we, we get the things that kind of jump out to his attention. Um, we've got the white paved court, a sweet fountain played in the morning sun, and a sward of bright green lay about it. He notices uh, the the sweetness of the fountain and the brightness of the grass around the fountain. And then there's this dead tree, which seems totally not in keeping uh, with the, the the with the landscaping here. Uh, in the midst, drooping over the pool, stood a dead tree, and the falling drops dripped sadly from its barren and broken branches back into the clear water. Um, now, there's, I think, a lot that we can that we can do with that there. Chris says everything about this is tinged with melancholy. It certainly is. Even the sweet fountain and the sward of bright green, um, uh, sweet as a, uh, as a, as a, adjective for fountain, I think does partially uh, invoke the sound of the fountain, that the fountain has, it's not a, it's not a roaring fountain, it's a sweet fountain. Um, but, um, but of course, the, the brightness of the grass around it also sort of speaks of, of, of sweetness in another sense, um, you know, that it is nourishing. We've got this thriving, beautiful green grass uh, around it. But in the midst of that beauty and that growth and that sweetness, is this dead tree, which, of course, is described as if weeping. The description of this tree uh, is... Okay, let me pause here for a nomenclature issue. Um, I dislike, I don't hate, I don't totally avoid, but I cordially dislike the word symbolic. The reason I cordially dislike the word symbolic uh, is the way that I have... had that word deployed in my direction by English teachers in times past. Um, and I learned in high school, uh, often, not, 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 not always, not in every class, but, uh, but often I learned uh, to start rolling my eyes uh, when my teacher started talking about symbolism in things. Um, and it seemed to me a way that, like, now we are going to start killing this story. Um, and I always disliked it. Um, and I do think that sometimes when people talk about symbolism, they do they are kind of doing to a story the kind of thing that Tolkien really disliked having done to a story. Um, uh the problem with symbols is that they are so often, you know, when, when, when symbols are detected or people believe they have detected a symbol, um, too often the thing becomes merely a symbol. Um, and it's that, it's that adverb merely that makes it fatal. 
Um, that is, when you stop really thinking about the things, when a character becomes a symbol of something and ceases to be a character, um, when you're really kind of sucking the soul out of something in order to make it into simply a set of abstract ideas. Um, so I, I am there because that's so often what's being done when people talk about symbolism and, and symbols in books. Um, I, I tend to be a little bit leery of using that word. Um, one word that I do really like, and which is not always applicable in situations like that, it's not merely a synonym, um, but I do think it applies here at this moment very well, and that is the word emblematic. It seems like a synonym, because an emblem is kind of like a symbol, but what I mean by that is something a little bit more particular. There was a very uh, common usage uh, in the late Middle Ages, but especially they loved it in the Renaissance. Um, of emblems. They used to publish whole books of emblem books, which were just basically collections of um, essentially allegorical images of something. So you would have an emblem of truth, which would depict, um, you know, sort of a, a, a kind of allegorical tableau, um, uh, which would try to sort of convey something about the concept of truth. Um, and that whole thing was taken to be an emblem, not just a symbol of truth, but an emblem of truth. Um, the, the, the sort of the, the depth of detail and allegorical richness, how every, how every element of that thing, it's not just to say like, the, you know, that person, you know, that, that, uh, um, you know, say there's some very famous emblems that have survived into our uh, into our time. The emblem of justice, for instance, the emblem of justice as the woman with the blindfold holding the sword and the scales. That's a that's a that's a that's a classic emblem. Um, they loved that one. Um, you can see, you know, for instance, Shakespeare, who loved emblems, um, uh, weaving that emblem into some of his. Uh, uh, into some of his plays. I'm thinking in particular of Act 5 of Measure for Measure for people who know Shakespeare, um, where he has uh, this elaborate assembling of the emblem of justice as uh, the Duke uh, returns to come and sit in justice, and he takes the guy who is the sword in one hand and the guy whose, names, whose name means scales in the other hand, and he sits in judgment. Um, those kinds of things, where you've got, where you've got that kind of, as I say, it's, it's like an allegorical tableau. Um with uh, such richness of symbolism in detail. I think that there are moments that we can see in Tolkien that are kind of emblematic like this. It's not quite as, as it's, you know, it's not, it's not with the kind of pageantry, certainly, that you would get in Elizabethan emblems and stuff like that. Um, but moments where you've got not just the white tree, it's because it's, it's not enough to say the white tree, the dead white tree, is a symbol of Gondor or a symbol of the kingship in Gondor or something, but rather this whole description of that tree here in this paragraph really brings us into the experience of Gondor, right? Of what Gondor is like, of the state that Gondor is in. Um, in the midst, in the midst, that is, of the sweet fountain, the morning sun, and the sward of bright green, in the midst of this, we get a dead tree, and the falling drops dripped sadly from its barren and broken branches back into the clear water. We have uh, the tree. What, what are we told about? The, the tree is dead. Its branches are broken and barren. Um, 
uh, both of which concepts, the, the breaking of the branches, thinking of, of how the line of the kings was broken, right? Um, if thinking, if, if we sort of think of the tree as being like, uh, you know, the, 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 the family tree, the, the line of the kings, the branches are broken, um, but they're also, they're, they're barren. They, they, they will no longer bear fruit, right? Um, of course, it goes without saying that a dead tree is barren, right? But again, that element of the of the of that dead tree is being emphasized there, um, and the sadness that's associated with those things. And again, the tree itself is weeping, and those tears are falling not into the earth. It's not; they're not falling like seeds and soaking back into the soil. The tree is barren. They're falling back into the clear water, uh, right? That that sort of the tears being wept by the tree being sort of reassimilated by the pool, by the water, um, which I, I, just, I think is really, is really, is really fascinating. Um, again, it doesn't suggest growth, um, but at the same time, the sort of the water returning, the, the water returning to the water, the water dripping into the water, um, I think is a really, uh, is a really powerful detail uh, there, um, which speaks of sort of the depth of the sorrow of of uh, of Gondor, you know, the the length of time in which it has mourned the loss of its king, um, and yet, you know, so it, it is as if the 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 pool below it is a pool of tears, right? That that the, the dead tree has been weeping for so long that this pool has grown up, and yet remember, the pool under it is not you know, a grim, flat pool of tears, but a sweet fountain playing in the morning sun. Uh, there is sweetness and there is life um, that this dead tree is still in the middle of. So we have both of those elements there. Um, the elements of beauty and even of hope with the morning sun, um, and yet also the weeping and the deadness. Um, okay. Um, let's see. So I'm scanning through comments of many, uh, many uh, uh, comments. Yes, Emily is seeing what I did with cordially dislike there. Yes. Um, good, good. Um, Timothy asks, could sweet here mean sweet water as opposed to salt? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, and I doubt it. Um, that is to say, I mean, I, I think it's very unlikely that they'd have a saltwater fountain. Though, of course, Tim, in the context of that, those tear images, it's 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 interesting, right? I mean, you think it, it would almost be fitting if it were a saltwater fountain, right? Um, so that the the uh, the the water itself could be, you know, would would taste like tears as well. Um, but it's not sweet, right? It's not tears. This is not a tear water fountain, uh, in fact, at all. Um, but um, Anyway, anyway, yeah, uh, Luke is all shocked that I said the word allegory, especially after having just said that I cordially disliked something, uh, evoking Tolkien's dislike of allegory. Um, but again, that's exactly why. Um, the, again, the reason he disliked it was the kind of soul-sucking that I was <laughs> describing people tend to do with symbolism. Um Interpreting something allegorically is not a bad thing. Interpreting something as merely an allegory is seems to me what Tolkien really disliked. Um, the idea that a, that uh, a writer is not in fact writing a story, but um, just playing a kind of a game and tipping winks at the reader and hoping they'll get what the real message is all about—that is what I 
think Tolkien was objecting to um, and saying that he didn't like in allegory. That is not to say that uh, things on the literal level, to use the uh, medieval terminology, that things on the literal level don't have also an allegorical significance, a greater symbolic or emblematic significance uh, on what, to use the same medieval terminology, would be called the spiritual level. Um, that's fine. That only gives richness. Uh, and in, in Tolkien's stories, so often mythic power to his stories. Um, but you just, as long as you're not, you know, looking to discard the husk, uh, you know, once you, once you sort of uh, get at this. Um, good. Uh, Luke, that's really interesting. Uh, Luke is sort of seeing this as sort of a tree of death. Um, you know, do we see this as, in, in any sense, as opposed uh, to the to a to a tree of life? It is interesting to have a tree in a locked enclosure here, in a guarded enclosure here, um, and uh, certainly the sweet fountain in the br- sward of bright green. Um, you know, maybe that's that's a pretty minor league Eden, I guess. But uh, um, but there's something you know, a little a little a little patch of 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 Eden there. Um, I, I wouldn't go too far with it. I could, mostly because the thing about the tree of life, the primary emphasis uh, or the primary sort of force of the tree of life, um, is not just that it is itself living, but that it confers life. And certainly, this is not a tree of death in the sense of conferring death in that same way. It's a it is a tree that is marking death, that is memorializing death, um, and that seems to be one of the things. Again, in that sense. It is. It serves. It seems to me as an emblem for Gondor. Gondor, as Pippin sees it here for the first time, um, that is a city which is alive, a city which still has life and vibrancy. It's got the sweet fountain. It's got the the sward of bright green grass. But, um, but like right centrally in the midst of that is the memorial of death. Right. It's a city that is still in the middle of its beauty, mourning. Uh, and that I think is. Uh, um, one of the things that that that, that the tree sort of uh, sort of says to me here in in, in its uh, in its description, um, yeah yeah, um, yes good. Mark is uh, uh, Mark Shenham is reminding us about, um, and um, by the way, I apologize to people in advance if I uh, mess up your names um, that. Uh, that of course, with uh, the tears here, we should be thinking not, you know, uh, not simply of 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 weeping associated with despair, uh, but of Nienna's tears as well, potentially pity and endurance and hope. Um, uh, poss- certainly, that's something to be kept in mind, uh, and something we'll come back to in particular with Denethor, um, whose grief is seems to be of a different sort. Um, and we'll focus on that a little bit more uh, probably two classes from now when we do the Pyre of Denethor. I really want to kind of dig into that a little bit. So take note of the passages about Denethor and his grief as we go through. I'm not going to spend much time on them now because I want to save them for when we talk about the Pyre of Denethor later on. Um, yeah, good. Um, Yes, uh, Timothy is pointing out it's an is an excellent point um, that uh, the way notice the way stylistically again notice the way in which he is inserting um, 
alliteration into the middle of these sentences in ways it doesn't jump out at you, it doesn't beat you over the head, but it does give the descriptions a kind of poetic force, even in the middle of his prose. Um, in the midst, drooping over the pool, stood a dead tree, and the falling drops dripped sadly from its barren and broken branches back into the clear water. Drooping, dead drops dripped, barren, broken branches back. Um, notice the way that not only that alliteration happens, but is balanced, right? Um, the D's then balanced by the B's at the end of that paragraph. That is the kind of thing, if you look closely, um, if you look closely at these passages, you'll see that kind of thing a lot. Um, his prose, Tolkien's prose, gets very poetic. It gets very different uh, in these passages, uh, I mean, in this book. Um, Chris, I also agree with you. Even the small things, like you know, okay, the description of the the description of the tree. Even if we don't notice what Timothy was pointing out about uh, the 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 sort of poetic alliteration in that passage, there's still a sort of an obvious poetic dilation there, right? In the midst, drooping over the pools, stood a dead tree, and the falling drops dripped sadly. The way that he's personifying um, the 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 drops. As they're like the drops are sad, as they you know they, they drip in a sad manner uh, from from the branches. I mean, those it's sort of there's, there's sort of some obvious poetic force there. Um, but I agree with Chris. Chris was pointing out uh, uh, how cool is his expression, you know, the the cool echoing shadows of the House of Stone. I love that too, Chris. Um, and then he found himself at the doors of the great hall, beneath the gleaming tower, and behind the wizard he passed the tall, silent door wardens and entered the cool, echoing shadows of the House of Stone. In this context, coming at the end of this description, that phrase, the cool, echoing shadows of the House of Stone, seems to have a kind of resonance. And, you know, sometimes I can't even put my finger on it. Sometimes it's not even like I can sit there and say, okay, let us anatomize this and let us... What is this a symbol of? I don't even necessarily go that far. It's just the words and phrases kind of echo. House of Stone. Um, it sort of resonates, it seems, with the whole at attitude and atmosphere of Minas Tirith here. It is a stony city, as it is called. And of course, they are coming in here to to the presence of Denethor, to the audience chamber of Denethor. And uh, he is certainly stony himself. Uh, and so his house that they are entering is a house of stone, um, which of course is going to be emphasized very soon here um, in, uh, in in just in a couple paragraphs. We'll say, you know, there's no wood or woven stuff. It's all stone. Um, it's all, you know, it is, it is, it is largely unadorned. Um, yeah, good. And uh, uh, Noam Weiss points out that the, contrast there between the cooling shadow and the morning sun very good i think that's a that's a really neat uh that's a really neat connection um both uh, jessica and don don standing and jessica rudman here at the same time pointing out the parallels that this sort of suggests or sort of the foreshadowing that it does of the houses of the dead uh jessica saying it sounds like they're walking into a mausoleum after weeping at a gravesite it does sound like that um it makes um, it does, get the, you know, the, the dead tree sitting there gives the whole thing a definitely funereal sense. Um, and, uh, and Don, I agree, it certainly does seem to foreshadow uh, the houses of the dead. Um, but then we get this business in the middle. In the middle of all this, we get an example of 
uh, that phrase that Rebecca really likes, uh, Rebecca Hunt and I really like too, um, Hobbit pertness, right? We get Pippin's point of view asserting itself. Um, it looked mournful, he thought, and he wondered why the dead tree was left in this place where everything else was well tended. Um, here is Pippin the Hobbit saying, Boy, that's pretty shabby, and really quite surprisingly so. I mean, the rest of this place looks pretty well tended. Why didn't they cut that thing down? Right? I mean, honestly, right? They, wait, wait, what, what are the gardeners around here thinking? Um, you know, it's a very, very natural and hobbit-like thing to happen. But then what happens? It's as if he hears a voice. Remember, we've seen this before. Um, when words are italicized like this, we've seen that happen for a couple reasons. One is poetry. The poetry is generally italicized, inset and italicized when we get it uh, in The Lord of the Rings. But do you remember the other times when we got italicized words like this interrupting the, 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 the prose? Do you remember? Yes, Luke and Chris are both wondering what Sam and, and the gaffer would say about this tree. Untidy, they might say. Um, yeah. But do you remember? Remember, where else do we get that kind of intervention, that kind of intervention of, an, of, of italicized words in the middle of the prose there? Good, two good example. Arthur Harrow says the hill of the, uh, the hill of the eye. That is uh, when, you know, like the voice that speaks in Frodo's mind when, uh, uh, when he's almost caught by the ring on Emon Hen, right, as Don Standing uh, says, and Tony Mead also. Um, I'm trying to remember to say your last names. I often just use the first names, but there's so many of you, I want to make sure I don't make mistakes. Um, and yes, but Erica and Jean were also, uh, Erica Henson and Jean Sullivan were also thinking of the passage that, the other passage that I was thinking of, which is in The Taming of Smeagol, when Gandalf's words uh, come back about uh, to Frodo about Gollum, and he seems to hear in his mind uh, that voice. So you notice the two times um, are... You know the, those 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 two examples that you guys were just giving. One is actually Gandalf speaking from afar in Frodo's mind, um, him reaching out to Frodo with his mind, you know, in the present. And the other is Frodo remembering Gandalf's voice, but remembering in a in a in a in a sort of a strange, strangely forceful way. There's, you know, we talked at the time in the Two Towers class about the way that that scene is set up and how um, how it strongly it's emphasized that uh, um, you know, it came to him as if he's hearing voices out of the past. You know, this is not just like and then Frodo remembered the time when Gandalf said something like this, right? This, no, it's like he has a moment where he's like reliving that and rehearing it and we get that whole exchange retyped for us, so that we, the readers, are hearing it again. Um, yes, he's having a he's having a memory like that, um, but uh, um, so again, we have here again Gandalf's words coming back. This seems to be. Uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a thing that is connected with Gandalf. Rebecca Hunt is trying to invent a word. Um, uh, that these words are Gand, uh, Gandalit. How, how would you say that? She's trying to combine Gandalf and italicized. Gandalit-sized? Uh, I, I don't know, I don't know. But anyway, yes. These are Gandalf's words coming back. Um, and of course, these words were italicized the first time because they were, they were, they were, they were, a rhyme of lore that he was reciting, right? Um, uh, but it comes back into into 
comes back into his mind. The words that Gandalf had murmured came back into his mind then. Um, remember, Pippin saying to Gandalf, why well, say remember it? He hasn't quite said it yet. When uh, he's telling, when he's giving to Pippin his instructions, right? Don't mention Aragorn either. Uh, you know, don't don't say anything about Aragorn. And he's like, why not? What's wrong with Strider? And he, you know, and he sa- talks about you know not wanting to to uh, to to say much about one who will, who will if he comes claim the kingship. Um, and Pippin says, kingship. Pippin is pretty clueless. What we see in P- in Pippin's exclamation, kingship, shows that he's not been paying a whole lot of attention, right? He himself admitted this back in the Two Towers when he and Mary were separated off, and he's like, gosh, I really wish I had paid more attention to maps and things, right? Um, but, uh, so Pippin, not been paying a whole lot of attention here, right? And Gandalf says, if you have walked through these days with closed mi- with closed ears and mind asleep, wake up now. Well, Pippin seems to be doing that, even even before, you know, right before, immediately before uh, Gandalf tells him that, we have an, uh, an instance of this kind of happening. We get three things, I would say, going, uh, sort of three different movements here in this passage. First, that description. That description which has that emblematic power. Um, you know, the way in which we are being introduced to sort of the spirit of Gondor and of Minas Tirith in the description of this tree without even being explicitly told about it. It's just being sort of conveyed to us uh, in, 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 in snatches, in sort of poetic snatches. Then we get Pippin's highly prosaic response to it. Dead tree, really shabby. What's going on here? These people need a, need, need, you know, Sam needs to give these people some lessons in gardening. That's the second move. And then the third move is Gandalf's words coming back to him. Oh, wait a second. There's something more going on here. This is, in fact, something greater and grander than I was... This is not just, in fact, the sloppiness of the Minas Tirith gardeners. Um, there There is more at stake here. In fact, Pippin opening his mind and opening his ears to these other things that he hadn't been paying attention to. Pippin... Um, looking at things at a higher level um, uh, and understanding them very differently. Um, Okay. Um, Let's see. Sorry, just looking over comments again. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, Chris points out that Chris Stevens points out that Gandalf's words seem to come back to people at convenient times. Uh, yes, yes, they certainly do. Um, and I don't think you know we were debating at the time in the Two Towers class. We were debating um, should we be thinking that Gandalf's words to Frodo in the Taming of Smeagol chapter that Gandalf's words are being sent to him that he's again receiving direct communication from Gandalf. Um, and I said at the time that I don't think that that's... It's, I, you can't absolutely rule it out, but I don't think uh, that that's what's happening there. Nor do I think that's what's happening here. I mean, he's right with Gandalf. Do I think that Gandalf is sending him telepathic messages? Um, you know, like, uh, you know, like he can just tell that P- what Pippin is thinking about the tree, and he's like, let me, like, clue the Took in telepathically here because I can't be bothered. Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I just, I think that Gandalf's words come back to people at convenient times. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Luke, exactly. Luke Bogger was saying that, that, uh, the, comparing Pippin's viewpoint here uh, to what we see uh, from him in, in Three's company back in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, yes, Pippin has changed a lot, but he's not completely transformed, right? We see, we, we still see him still being sort of recognizably, recognizably Pippin-ish, but he's, um, uh, but yet he now has this insight again? His he is starting to wake up his mind and open his ears uh, to these to these other things. Um, yeah, Mike is uh, Mike Thoreau is pointing out how you know Pippin's moment, his you know aha moment, is sort of cut short with, and then he found himself. Uh, you know the way in which the story propels uh, propels him forward. Um, you know, and then he found himself at the doors. Uh, he doesn't even really have time to think about it or process it before he is swept along and entering the cool, echoing shadows of the House of Stone. Um, yeah. Well, the point I'd like to make about this, and you'd think I should be getting to my point since I've been talking about this passage for over half an hour, uh, and it's, believe it or not, not the only passage I wanted to talk about. Um, I think that the role that the Hobbit point of view plays here is absolutely crucial. Um, and the the way, I think, in which Tolkien makes the, um, the tone of The Return of the King work, and in particular, the way that he... The, 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 the primary way in which he is able to make the high things, you know, the high style of The Return of the King... Um, really effective for us because the Lord of the Rings has from the beginning been told at Hobbit level. The point of view of of the Lord of the Rings is by and large you know, between three and four feet above the ground. That's the way, you know, so the big people are big people and we're looking up at Aragorn and we're looking up at Gandalf, even back in book one um, and even more so now here in book five. The thing that we see is that uh, what changes, I think, between book one and book five is not that the point of view shifts, but that the perspective underlying the point of view changes, just as we see here. Pippin, um, on the one hand, you know, we're getting this through Pippin, um, and the con- far from distracting us uh, from this really, you know, moving and powerful description of the tree. Uh, you know, Pippin's wondering why the dead tree was left in this place where everything else was well tended. Um, you know, uh, Pippin's little gardening critique, far from deflating things or distracting from it, really emphasizes it, especially because he has that moment where he is, it is you know, as Mike says, his aha moment, right? Um, or even not quite aha, but oh, right? And we, the readers, are encouraged to have that same moment with Pippin. Um, that we see, oh, oh, wait, no, this is not, um, this is not a funny little thing, a dead tree left in a living garden. This is, this is, this is almost numinous. You know, this is something, there's, there's something, there's something really powerful going on here, at the least emotionally powerful, and possibly, uh, more than that as well. Um, we are being kind of brought up with Pippin. As Pippin is brought up here, we are being brought up as well, uh, being brought up with him. Um, yeah, Lynn Hayes says this whole chapter is about the transformation of Pippin into Peregrine. Yeah, and you'll notice how 
that actually that his name actually does shift. He's called Peregrine more often. How often is the word Peregrine used? Uh, this would be interesting. Uh, somebody, uh, somebody like uh, like Sparrow, my Mythgard student, needs to make a spreadsheet. How many times is Pippin called? You know, what's the 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 uh, Pippin percentage? That is the number of time this character's name is used. Um, what percentage of the time is he called Pippin compared to the percentage of the time he's called Peregrine? Um, and I bet if we charted that, we would see uh, something interesting. Um, and I'd be willing to bet that in Book Five, there is a there is a there is a there is a, a, a sharp increase, uh, really high first derivative on our chart of the uh, the Peregrine percentage. Uh, in uh, in this book, I totally I totally think that that would that that would that that would happen. So, Lynn, I think that's a really that's a really um, that's a really sensitive uh, comment. Gene Sullivan says, as soon as I've said it, he bets that uh, Emil that Emil Johansson has that data already. I bet he does. That's one of the reasons I love what Emil does. Um, uh, very good. Um, okay. Yes. Good. Yeah. Gene is pointing out how you know. Um, remembering what Pippin says to Baragond on the wall. Um, we may stand if only on one leg or at least be left still upon our knees. Pippin from book one would never have said that. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, Yes, Arthur, I agree that transformation does start in book three. And this, I think, is one of the other things... Um, you know, one of the things that we talked about a little bit, um, though could have talked about more in the two towers, is the uh, well, the use, the point of uh, of the capture of Marion Pippin. That is, what what good does it do? It does much in every way. One could say um, the role, the 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 that apparent piece of disaster um, is uh, is is. You know, the more you think about it, the more significant you see um, on so many different levels. Significant for Boromir. You know, it is the thing that really triggers uh, Boromir's, uh, you know, gives Boromir the opportunity for redemption. We did talk about that, the significance of the capture of Merry and Pippin uh, to Boromir. Um, the significance of it to Treebeard and the Ents. If they had not been brought there where they never would have gone otherwise, what would have come of Treebeard? What would have come of Isengard? What would have come of, of Rohan had that, had that not happened? But then also, um, thinking about it on this level, as Arthur is suggesting, what would have come of Pippin and Merry? Um, that is, what if they had just continued tagging along? Um, you know, and ended up at Minas Tirith. What if, uh, what if Aragorn had been able to execute his plan A, and Aragorn, Frodo, Sam, and Gimli, and possibly Legolas, uh, go off towards Mordor, leaving Merry and Pippin and Boromir to go on to Minas Tirith. So, okay, Merry and Pippin go to Minas Tirith with Boromir. They just keep tagging along with him. What comes of them then? What do they do? I don't think the Witch King is getting stabbed in the back of the knee, if that happens. Um, I'm not sure Faramir is getting saved, if that happens. I mean, you know, it's... They... Uh, their own characters, their own um, experiences are being... Uh, are, are, are shaping them. And the painful and difficult ones, as well as the... as well as the sort of good ones. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, okay. Good. Um, Yeah, Nate is wondering about thinking about the Peregrine percentage. How does that compare with the Marriottic percentage? Um, and that's, I agree, it's, that's very interesting. Um, because, of course, uh, you know, he's pointing out that, you know, the Rohirrim, uh, whose language tends to be much more casual than uh, in Gondor, and I agree. Um, but uh, I bet it would still rise. But I bet it wouldn't be as big as Pippin's. Um, that would be my prediction for what this chart would look like is that Pippin's chart would be higher and steeper uh, than Mary's. Um, but I bet they both trend upwards. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, we've got we've got we've got data gathering going on <laughs> as we speak. Excellent. Excellent. Um, okay. Alright. So Ed and Tim are both working on this. Uh, make me a graph, uh, and I'll and I'll and I'll put it up on screen. I want to see the I, I, I want to see the graph. I I, I want a line graph here. Um, yeah, yeah. Very good, very good. Um, <laughs> okay, very good. All right, I'm going to move on to our next passage, because it's, it's still about Pippin, so we're not really shifting. Right in this next scene, we have another Pippin moment here. Denethor looked indeed much more like a great wizard than Gandalf did, more kingly, beautiful, and powerful, and older. Yet by a sense other than sight, Pippin perceived that Gandalf had the greater wisdom, and the greater power and the deeper wisdom, and a majesty that was veiled. And he was older, far older, how much older, he wondered. And then he thought how odd it was that he had never thought about it before. Treebeard had said something about wizards, but even then he had not thought of Gandalf as one of them. What was Gandalf? In what far time and place did he come into the world, and when would he leave it? And then his musings broke off, and he saw that Denethor and Gandalf still looked each other in the eye, as if reading the other's mind. But it was Denethor who first withdrew his gaze. Pippin here, self-consciously, has this moment, right? Um, he has that moment of awe when he sort of puts it together and realizes the significance of what he's seeing when he's looking at the dead tree in the in the garden. But here, he's he's musing, right? He's having this sort of moment of introspection, um, and but the thing that's different here is that. Uh, he thought how odd it was that he had never thought about it before. Not just This is not just a moment where we are seeing him suddenly opening his eyes, opening his ears, opening his mind uh, to this higher world, to this bigger world, but being aware that he's doing it, right? How did I never think about this before? How did I never notice? How have I managed to take all of the things for granted that I have taken for granted to this time? Um, it suddenly appears strange to him. And he realizes, even when Treebeard was talking about wizards, he knew, in theory, that Gandalf was a wizard. He probably would have introduced Gandalf as a wizard, uh, but um, he never thought about, what does that mean? Um, 
think about uh, the way that Gandalf is treated in the Shire, right? The way that the hobbits react to him. Um, They like his fireworks, right? He's a local legend as far as that goes. Um, They find him kind of mysterious, but they don't really think about it. They certainly don't seem to have any sense of awe, exactly. Um, Nervousness, even fear sometimes, some of them, it seems, but, but not really awe. Not like this, you know, not that sense that Pippin is clearly having here. What was Gandalf? What kind of... Wow, he's really operating on a totally different level from the rest of us, right? Denethor is high. Denethor is high above Pippin himself, right? He's high above many of the other people that he has seen. He looked much much more like a great wizard than Gandalf. He, He looks kingly, beautiful, powerful. Um... But Pippin is sort of realizing here, Gandalf is really actually something else. What's what, you know, again the, the way in which his mind is being open to this? Um, uh, yes, Erica says. Erica Henson says his eyes are opening. Yes, exactly. He's now seeing things, seeing things with new eyes, and not just like now I'm seeing a dead tree and realizing, oh no, actually I'm now seeing the significance of this. Things that were familiar to him, things that he was taking for granted. Right, um, just as Gandalf was urging him to not continue taking for granted Aragorn, right? To you know, not stop thinking of him just as Strider, that guy who's been traveling with us, uh, you know, since the prancing pony. But rather, um, he is the you know the 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 future king. Again, assuming we win the war, um, he's the future king of Gondor. He's the heir of Isildur. You know, he's. Uh, he knew all those things in theory, right? It, it doesn't actually. I, I don't think Pippin genuinely lacks that information, um, but he's obviously not processed it, right? Not put it together. What he's um, with uh, with what he's with what he's doing here. Um, um, yeah, Arthur Harrow points out a really interesting thing: um, that jump from um, how old is he? Uh, to when will he leave the world? Um, yeah, well, you know, Arthur, what I understand from that is this is Pippin's recognition. Um, not of Gandalf's mortality, exactly. I mean, you've already seen Gandalf plummet into the abyss, but um, the f- this is all, this is of a piece of the, with the previous question, what was Gandalf? Um, his recognition, Gandalf is not a mortal. And he's not just an immortal, either. He's not just like the elves, either. He genuinely doesn't belong here in Middle-earth. He's just visiting Middle-earth. He is something else entirely that has come into Middle-earth in order to help us and be with us. But he entered into it at one point, and he's going to depart from it at another point. He doesn't really belong here. That seems to be the sort of the inspiration, the recognition that Pippin is having here. Um... So I, I see that as following Arthur uh, upon the what was Gandalf question. Um, yeah, yeah, and as Daniel Bear points out, Denethor first withdrawing his gaze um, from Gandalf's does reaffirm Pippin's, Pippin's sense. Also, remember we've seen something like this before, that uh, Pippin perceived, uh, you know, yet by a sense other than sight, Pippin perceived that Gandalf had the greater power and the deeper wisdom. This other sense... Um, that Pippin has 
Denethor looks more like a great wizard. If you sort of, you know, his his mental picture of what a great wizard should look like, Denethor looks really impressive. Um, um, king, kingly, beautiful, powerful, and old. Those seems to be those seem to be the things that Pippin associates with wizards. Um, and Denethor is got it over Gandalf in, in every category. Um, but by a sense other than sight, some other way he can perceive, he can sense the wisdom and the power of Gandalf. Remember those moments back in the Two Towers, when Sam had similar kinds of insights? Not exactly the same, but remember there there were a couple times when he perceived Frodo with other sight. A time when he almost... Uh, 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 when he, when he sees him standing and 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 uh, Gollum cringing at his feet like a dog, right? And there's you know he he seems to see the two of them with other sight, and he sees the connection between the two, you know, the kinship between between the two of them. They're very different, and yet they they are akin and not strange. Um, there's that that is sort of a similar moment. It's it's more powerful with Sam in that moment. He, it he describe you know it's described from his point of view as almost like a a, a vision as as something he can actually see um but uh but uh, but but I think with Pippin he's getting a sort of a similar thing too and I agree um as Brent uh Sprinkle saying this revelation carries over to the reader as well again we're carried along with Pippin right that we are um if we've never thought about Gandalf this way um if we've never asked these questions what is Gandalf um when did he come into the world, and where? And when is he going to leave it? Um, um, I would also ask, and why did he come into the world, and what is he here to do? Remember in the Two Towers, when he's talking to uh, Legolas and Aragorn and Gimli, he says, I was sent back into this world until my task was complete. Uh, what, what, what task exactly? What are you being sent to do? Not apparently as... A champion, that is to say, okay, he's not going to go and challenge Sauronic's single combat, for instance, take him down and say, thank you, everybody, my only reward is that justice has been done. I'm going to ride off into the sunset now. Um, that's not his task. Um, what is his task, exactly? He is a steward, right, as he explains. Um, but, um, but of course, one of the things also that Pippin's perception here—it does—it's not only that it that it opens it, or rather, it prompts us to open our minds and our eyes and our ears um, when we're looking at Gandalf and seeing what's going on here. But it's also pointing to something else that, um, if Pippin can't see it with his sight, the narrator also can't describe it, right? Um, because the narrator is describing what we can see and 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 hear in this scene, but Pippin's experience communicates to us something that is outside of the normal senses and therefore outside the reach of the narrator to point to directly. And that is what lies behind with Gandalf. And what this also, you know, sort of points to what this is, is also that whole world of what hobbits call magic as well. Um, Denethor and Gandalf are not just having a staring competition. This is not just, you know, like trying to prove who is the alpha male here and who is going to twitch first. Um, this is a much more powerful spiritual encounter. Um, this, I would say, is almost a fight between Denethor and Gandalf. Not a duel between the two of them, but something like... Uh, something like an arm wrestling competition, spiritual arm wrestling competition between the two of them. Um, and Denethor looks away. Denethor also seems to recognize that he is 
um, that he cannot compete directly with Gandalf. But this seems to bother him. And you'll notice he, right after this, starts doing his kind of passive-aggressive stuff with Gandalf um, after he's lost this, um, this, this little duel here. Um, I say not exactly a duel, but... Um, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, yeah, good. Um, sorry, just scanning, scanning through your comments here again. Um, yeah, Morgan Sowell asks, uh, is it ever made explicit that Gandalf isn't human uh, in The Hobbit of the Lord of the Rings? Well, in The Hobbit, it's stated that he is. I mean, he's called a man. There's no... Um, we're given very little reason to think in The Hobbit. Again, if, we, if, we, if all we had was The Hobbit, I, I don't think we'd have much evidence at all that Gandalf isn't human. Um, but in The Lord of the Rings, this is one of the primary passages I would point to. Um his description of what happened to him after um, his death, and it does seem that he died in the sense that his spirit departed from Middle-earth um, uh, and left his body behind, it would seem, and he seems to have been given a new body, whether it's an entirely different body or whether his body was revived and upgraded, I don't know. Um, but uh, but the way that Gandalf describes that also sort of suggests that he, this is his is not a normal human experience. Um, he's not um, he's not just human. So, um, but but again, I would I would say uh, Morgan as well. This passage is another one I would point to. Um, the way that Pippin's realizations about Gandalf um, and his sudden um, sort of reassessment of Gandalf, I think, is very much directing us as readers to uh, to reassess that as well. Now, you'll notice, oh, we get all the questions. We don't get the answers. What was Gandalf? That question isn't answered. Not, not here, right? Not now in the story. Um, uh, and that seems, that's a very... Uh, that's a very characteristic Tolkien approach to to this kind of thing. Um, he's not gonna uh, spell it out, not in the middle of the story like this. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, good. Um, let's see. Yeah, good. Um, yeah, Matt makes a wonderful point. Matt says he is, right? Thinking back to Goldberry and Tom Bombadil, um, uh, it, it is it is very like the answer that Frodo gets to the question when he asks Goldberry, "Who is Tom Bombadil?" He is, he is as you have seen him. And remember that whole conversation. Goldberry is emphasizing, "How can you answer that question?" Right? Um, what? 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 Uh, you, uh, um, what kind of answer do you expect to that? Um, so yeah, to some extent, I, I, I do think uh, that's a that's a that's a good parallel, um, uh, Matt. Um, okay, um, 
I want to look at some other examples. And I think that the way that um, we're getting this through Pippin's point of view is really important. And these are two moments, I think, where we're, we can see really clearly the kind of cues that we're being given, the way that our point of view is being brought up with Pippin's um, into this other range. There are other times when he's just overhearing it, um, or even occasionally times when a hobbit is not overhearing things, um, where the story has just modulates into a totally different mode than we've seen before. Uh, one, I'm thinking of Gandalf at the gate here. I always loved this passage. Um, so Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of the men of Gondor at the rising of the sun, and its iron doors rolled back before them. Mithrandir! Mithrandir! men cried. Now we know that the storm is indeed nigh! It is upon you, said Gandalf. I have ridden on its wings. Let me pass. I must come to your lord Denethor while his stewardship lasts. Whatever betide, you have come to the end of the Gondor that you have known. Let me pass. The sort of casual prophecy that Gandalf tosses off here, um, which seems relatively unprovoked, uh, I would say. You know, the fact that Gandalf feels that... uh, you know his response to the men at the great gate um should be to 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 deliver this uh this doom um whatever betide you have come to the end of the gondor that you have known good to see you again though right i mean it's uh it, that this is this is a very different mode um and notice even uh, it's it's very noticeable in their dialogue um the men are speaking like the men of Minas Tirith do, which is very formalized, generally. Um, Gandalf, though, does not always talk like that. I must come to your Lord Denethor while his stewardship lasts. Uh, what a fascinating comment. I, you know, I need to see him right away. While his stewardship lasts, because, you know, I mean, like, any minute it could be over. Right? Um, and, and, and I get... The, the sort of the deliberate ambiguity that he's using here, while his stewardship lasts, of course, could mean two, one of two things, right? His stewardship would end with the destruction of Gondor, but of course it would also end with the return of the king. And then he makes explicit the sort of dual implications of his comment, whatever betide, one way or the other, you have come to the end of the Gondor that you have known. Um... It almost sounds this passage almost sounds like one-upsmanship on Gandalf's part. Now we know that the storm is indeed nigh. You know the men see him and they say, "Ah, we see, uh, we see, we see in you a portent of the coming battle." Um, some of this is like what Wormtongue said, right? You know, uh, you know, Loth spell I name you, and ill news is an ill guest. You know, Gandalf Stormcrow. Uh, there's. Uh, there's, you know, in such hour are you want to come, Gandalf Stormcrow. Um, all of these kinds, you know, th- there's, th- there's, there's an element of that there. Um, but they're addressing it on a much different level. They're, they're, they're certainly addressing it with a different attitude. Now we know that the storm is indeed nigh. Their response to seeing him is, ah, we see in you a portent, right? And he one-ups them, right? Yeah, I am a portent. I am a, I am a portent. You know, doom is upon you. Change is happening. The Gondor that you have always known has come to an end and will never be the same again, whatever betide, right? Um, this is welcome to the beginning of the new Gondor, which is either going to be the dead Gondor or the restored Gondor. We don't know yet, but one way or the other... Um, 
the Gondor you've known is 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 gone. Again, that, that the way that this exchange unfolds, the fact that this is the exchange that they have at the gates, they themselves, both the men of Minas Tirith and Gandalf, seem very aware that they are taking part in this kind of momentous uh, occasion. But notice the narrator's tone at the beginning there. So Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of the men of Gondor at the rising of the sun, and its iron doors rolled back before them. It's the so that does it there for me. If you took that out, Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of the men of Gondor at the rising of the sun, and its iron doors rolled back before them. It's a perfectly good sentence, isn't it? Notice the difference, though? How would you describe that difference? I'll do it again. Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of the men of Gondor at the rising of the sun, and its iron doors rolled back before them. Contrasted with, So Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of the men of Gondor at the rising of the sun, and its iron doors rolled back before them. Why the so? What is it? What does that accomplish? Susan says it makes it more stately. Yes. Yes, I agree. Uh, Emily says much more of a sense of majesty. Yes, definitely. Um, uh, Alyssa says it's like the Hwat of Beowulf. Um, yes, Hwat! Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of men. Uh, yes, yes, though, though even more so um, is, uh, of course, when he does low, right? You know, and low, uh, that's when you're really getting the Hwat, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, Tony Mead says uh, it's the difference between a simple description um, of an event, as opposed to an event with meaning. With meaning, um, yeah. Robert Brown was thinking of what too. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, Nate says there's a uh, Nate Gordon says it, it makes it sound like there's a reason that Gandalf and 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 Pippin come there. It's you know it's like inevitable. Uh, Molly Hester also pointing out so is like the fulfillment of a prophecy. Yes. So Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of men. Um, it just it makes it sound like a highly anticipated event, right? We've been waiting for that time. I always knew Gandalf and Peregrine would ride to the great gate of the men of Gondor. Um, thus it happened, right? Thus did it come to pass that Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the great gate of the men of Gondor. The event by itself, take out the so, the description of the event, so that, that might, that's kind of interesting, right? You know, uh, FYI, Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the Great Gate of the Men of Gondor, right? You're just describing something that's happening. So Gandalf and Peregrine rode to the Great Gate of the Men of Gondor. Um, This is a momentous occasion, right? This is, uh, in this way, did Gandalf and Peregrine ride to the Great Gate? In this way, did this event come to pass? This is now, them coming to the gate is now an event, capital E. Um, This is a moment capital M, uh, which again, it's not, we, we've not been given, the, we, we know of no prophecies that are being fulfilled here, we don't actually see that happening, but but it's but it's like that. Um, uh, so yeah, I think that that's, um, um, yeah. Rebecca Hunt says she, she was just about to compare it to, uh, to thus. Um, yeah, Susan says, it will become legend. Um, almost, Susan, I would say, it is as if it already is legend, right? Um, that's one of the things that I think that we can see happening here in The Return of the King on numerous occasions. Um, we are not just witnessing events 
which will someday be passed down into legend. We are being reminded that we are reading one of the legends of those times. Um, and that, I think, is, uh, is one of the effects that we get at this moment. Again, we didn't, we didn't realize that, uh, we, we didn't realize that Gandalf and Piven coming to the gate, um, was, I mean, you know, they're coming to meet us here. I guess they have to go through the gate, right? I mean, it, it could be just an incidental thing. It's given the weight of legend here, right? Um, in that, in that sentence, almost in that one word, right, we are prompted to view Gandalf and Pippin's arrival in Minas Tirith as a moment of great significance, right? Um, um, I mean, we might have guessed that it was important, but again, this is, this is now a legendary event, and we are reminded that we are reading legend. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, let me give. Uh, let me look at another example, and this is a different kind of example. Um, this is the conversation between Aragorn and Eowyn um, right after Aragorn's arrival in Dunharrow before he takes the paths of the dead. Um, this is the first of the three exchanges between the two of them. Uh, there, but Aragorn said, and this is you know right there, she's just said, I'll you know I'll 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 make have some lodgings made up for you guys. But Aragorn said, Nay, lady, be not troubled for us. If we may lie here tonight and break our fast tomorrow, it will be enough, for I ride on an errand most urgent, and with the first light of morning we must go. Think about, as we were looking at with the, with the, with the last quote, think about the actual dialogue itself, but think also of how the narrator speaks as well. She smiled on him and said, and it was kindly done, Lord, to ride so many miles out of your way to bring tidings to Eowyn and to speak with her in her exile. Indeed, no man would count such a journey wasted, said Aragorn. And yet, lady, I could not have come hither if it were not that the road which I must take leads me to Dunharrow. And she answered as one that likes not what is said. Then, Lord, you are astray, for out of Harrowdale no road runs east or south, and you had best return as you came. "'Nay, lady,' said he, "'I am not astray, for I walked in this land ere you were born to grace it. There is a road out of this valley, and that road I shall take. Tomorrow I shall ride by the paths of the dead.' Then she stared at him as one that is stricken, and her face blanched, and for long she spoke no more, while all sat silent. "'But Aragorn,' she said at last, "'is it then your errand to seek death? For that is all you will find on that road. They do not suffer the living to pass.' They may suffer me to pass, said Aragorn, but at the least I will adventure it. No other road will serve. What do you notice? What do you notice? Again, certainly, um, yeah, compare, you know, we're talking with Pippin, uh, you know, c contrast Pippin's dialogue there with, uh, you know, so the way that Pippin is thinking about things with the way that Pippin was thinking about things back in book one. Well, even even with Aragorn here too, right? Look at how he talks here. Compare the you know, go back to to the Strider chapter in book one. Um it's not totally unlike, it's not unrecognizable, but it is very formal. Um uh 
as both Tony and Emily are pointing out, Tony Mead and Emily Metcalf are pointing out, um, Eowyn is uh, speaking of herself in the third person uh, to bring tidings to Eowyn and to speak with her in her exile. Um, she is adopting formality there, but now notice she says that with a smile, right? Um, this is not how she normally talks. She is being deliberately indirect there. Um, because you'll notice she leaps to an interpretation here, um, uh, which is unfortunately incorrect. Um, her first interpretation of, uh, uh, no, we've got to take off right away, I only just came uh, for for the one night, is, wow, he came out of his way just to just to speak to me, right? Just to say hi, right? That's really flattering. Um, and so she speaks of herself in the third, and that seems a little bit a little bit coy, possibly, almost, and I hesitate to say this, uh, lest it sound demeaning, almost flirtatious, um, uh, playful, at least, I will say, um, on your way to bring tidings to Eowyn and to speak with her in her exile. Um, she's speaking of herself indirectly um, uh, to kind of sort of toy with that and deflect that. Um, but his the solemnity, as Rebecca says, of his register is um uh is is different. You know, he's gentle. Indeed no man would count such a journey wasted. And yet, lady, I could not have come hither if it were not that the road which I must take leads me to Dunharrow. Notice the way that they are now both speaking around the subject. They both know what they're talking about, right? You know, he doesn't just come out and say, um uh, sorry, it's great to see you and all, but I gotta go to the Paths of the Dead, so, um, you know, uh, sorry about that. Um, you know, I, the road which I must take leads me to Dunharrow. She answered as one that likes not what is said. Um, the two descriptions that the narrator gives of Eowyn are two of my favorites. I love that line. She answered as one that likes not what is said. Um, there are not very many places where the narrator of the Lord of the Rings talks like that. Um, and she answered as one that likes not what is said. Or, she stared at him as one that is stricken, and her face blanched, and for long she spoke no more. Um, her face blanched. Um, her face grew pale. We just, he just used, the narrator just used that expression earlier on in this same chapter. Um, but, uh, but now we get, uh, as one that is stricken and her face blanched. The narrator's uh, uh, tone is definitely shifting upwards here, too. Um, let's see. Um, yeah, Tom says Aragorn is in full-blown epic hero mode now. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um Yeah, good. Um Yeah, I um I agree with you Jean Jean Sullivan is wanting to sort of qualify my uh comment about uh, Eowyn being fortacious with the fact that we can also sense her bitterness about her exile. You know that there's that there's there's that t there's that uh that that tinge of bitterness uh to that comment. Um I'm sure I'd go so far as sarcasm, Gene, but 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 close. Um, 
Sarah says that, you know, I walked in this land ere you were born to grace it. Uh, Sarah thinks that's pretty smooth. Um, uh, yeah, it, it is. It is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, he is, he certainly lets her down extremely gently here. Um, again, through the uh through the, the 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 formal language that he's using um rebecca points out that the the narrator is extremely careful to preserve her dignity i agree so is aragorn careful to preserve her dignity um yes yes um mike is also pointing uh pointing out how much he likes the use of the word adventure as a verb uh which is indeed very unusual but at the least i will adventure it um, yes, adventure can be a verb, just like venture can be a verb, um, but it's very rarely used. And again, it's another way in which um, I think that's another really great example of how this sort of modulation is working. Notice um, their um, their language. How has it changed? Exactly. Let's sort of stop. We've, you know, I've been saying there. You know, the tone modulates. The tone gets more formal. How exactly? Um, they haven't totally changed grammatical registers, right? That is to say, you know, it, it's not like uh, it's not like they're theing and vowing each other or anything like that, right? We don't have that kind of a shift. Um, that happens sometimes, um, but it's not. That's not happening here. Um, we're not so he's not shifting to archaic pronouns. He's not um, shifting even to complicated or archaic words exactly. Um, I mean, am I looking? At, am I overlooking anything? There's there are very few hard words um, that are being used here. What do you think? Um, What do you think? Um, yeah, I agree. Mark Mark Shenham says that word order is one of the main shifts. Um, I agree. Now, Tom, Tom, you're right. Tom says that thou would be familiar and you is more distant. You're right. Um, but in the economy of the the English that is being used as a translation of what they're saying, right? Of the actual English used by the narrator uh, in this. Um, the shift to thee and thou would clearly sound archaic. And it, it does it, it, it's, it, it does happen. These and thous are occasionally used. Um, but someone will correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that it's ever simply used familiarly. That is, when a shift to using thee or thou um, is just for used for the purpose of familiarity. Um, um, but anyway, I, but I agree with with uh, with Mark. Um, word order is. A major plays a major role. They they don't. It, it, he doesn't use hard words. He doesn't use um, archaic words, but he does change the structure uh, of his syntax. Um, we get some 
words like error, like I walked in this land, error, you were born to grace it. The word error is not unknown in the Lord of the Rings, um, but it's not super common. Um, uh, but but again, word order. There is a road out of this valley, and that road I shall take. That road I shall take. Object, subject, verb. Um, that's that's how one of the ways um, the the that the 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 formality here is uh, is 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 increased here. Um, for that is all that you will find on that road. Um, yeah. Good. Um, Lynn Hayes points out um, they address each other as lady and lord um, until Awen is stricken and calls him Aragorn in her distress. Um, I agree, Lynn, that is an important shift there. But Aragorn, is it then your errand to seek death? Um, she, far from moving upwards, she moves downwards. That is in tone, um, you know. From uh, it was kindly done, Lord, to ride so many miles out of your way to bring tidings to Eowyn and to speak with her in her exile. That's miles away from Aragorn. Is it then your errand to seek death? For that is all you will find on that road. Um, her tone goes down, um, and it seems to be more spontaneous, less formalized. He um, does not shift. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, uh, good. Um, Arthur points out that later Aragorn shifts from you to the towards Eowyn at her wedding. Yeah, uh, uh, talking, we'll, we'll, uh, We'll 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 come back to that. That's a great observation, Arthur. I'm glad you pointed out. Well, we'll tr- we'll we'll notice that when we get there later on in the book. But that's uh, uh, that's a really great observation. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um. Excellent. Okay. Um. Yes, yeah, Timothy's quoting you. I wished thee joy ever since I first saw thee. Yes, absolutely. Um, um, good, good. Um, this is another moment, I think, where we are seeing evidence. And again, it's not in their words. Their words are complex. And we can see that we, we could talk for a lot longer about what's going on here. Um, the way in which we get the play of formality and informality, the indirections that are being used um, for various complicated reasons. Aragorn is trying to, he is being kind but cautious knowing that, uh, perceiving how she is feeling and what she's thinking about him, and not wanting to lead her on, but not wanting to shame her either, um, and also wanting to break to her gently, because he knows, even though he knows he, you know, he, he, he doesn't return her love, yet he still realizes um, and is compassionate to the fact that, given what she thinks and what she's feeling towards me, 
me just up and saying, yes, yeah, so I'm off to the paths of the dead, um, you know, and I, I know you're probably assuming that I'm just going to, uh, you know, that I'm going to die and that I'm going on a useless errand to my death. Um, so I'm just going to drop that on you. He doesn't drop that. I mean, he's very indirect in breaking that to her, too. You know, her, the, the, her own tone and how she um, is is being a little, again, I, 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 flirtatious sounds too frivolous, so I, I'm nervous about saying that, but, but she's being a little, I think she's, uh, um, at least wanting or, 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 or wishing to interpret him that way and kind of giving signals like, I hear you, I'm on to you, I see what you're doing, and, uh, and it's okay with me, right? I mean, I think that that's how I read that, that line from her at the beginning, um, but then the way that she picking up on what he's saying, the road which I must take leads me to Dunharrow. Wait a second, you can't possibly mean what I think you mean, right? There's only one road other than the one you came from that leads out of Dunharrow. Um, and you know, so she's answering as one that likes not that which is. Then you are astray. No road runs east or south out of Harrowdale. Um, again, the, the sort of the emotional complexity and the if I can say, social complexity of that moment. Um, we can see going on in their own dialogue. But what interests me even more than that is the way that the narrator's shift happens here. Um, but Aragorn said, She smiled on him and said, And she answered as one that likes not what is said. Then she stared at him as one that is stricken and her face blanched. This has to me a similar tone to that so Gandalf and Peregrine that we were looking at before. Um, this is an important moment, right? This is a legendary, you know, and thus spake Aragorn to Eowyn at this moment. Um, the exchange between them is significant. Um, this is, you know, weight is being given to this exchange. Even if we are going through this passage like Pippin, with uh, you know, with with ears closed and mind asleep. The narrator is trying to wake us up, right? Um, this is a significant moment. This meeting of Aragorn, we were cued for this a, lo- a while back. It's a line that jumps way out at me in the Two Towers. Thus, for the first time in the full light of day, did Eowyn. Behold Aragorn. Remember that when she see, she meets him for the first time, and you want to talk about blowing a trumpet, you know. Thus, for the first time in the full light of day, did she behold? You know, did did, did no? Did Aragorn behold her? Right? Um, and it's like, whoa! What just happened here? Right? Uh, this is uh, this is clearly important. Um, Eowyn is really important. This exchange between them is really important. This is not just... uh, And I think it's one thing also, if we do pick up, you know, if if we're not totally clueless, and we're sort of seeing what's going on between Aragorn and Eowyn here, um, I think that the, the tone of the narrator here, in addition to sort of showing us again... We are in a legend here. We are hearing a legend. This is an important moment in a great and legendary story. It also insulates us, I think, from smiling here. The narrator, too, as someone I forget who it was, has said, is protecting Eowyn's dignity, not just in the way that it describes her, but in the tone that it is maintaining and prompt the way that it prompts us to look at this scene. Um, there's, this isn't funny. This is... Uh, um, 
this is something that oh Rebecca it was you great yeah um, this is something that um, uh, this you know this is a this is a this is this is a, this is a big this, a big moment an important moment not just in Eowyn's life um, but uh, but also through um, uh, through in this whole in this whole story um, this is going to be an important moment when we think about what's going to come of Eowyn, you know, on, on the Pelennor field, this moment is going to be an important one in several senses. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm already technically over time. Um, but I'm gonna keep going a little bit. I'm gonna try to. I, I, I'm gonna try to s- accelerate slightly. But let's go on and look at. It. I want on the theme of Aragorn. I want to keep pursuing Aragorn here a little bit, um, and uh, look at look at this Aragorn's elevation. That not only the new way he talks, but the new way that he acts. And again, ways in which. Like Pippins, our eyes are being opened to see things in different ways, the ways that we are being cued for that. Here's Aragorn after looking into the Palantir. You have looked in that accursed stone of wizardry, exclaimed Gimli, with fear and astonishment in his face. Did you say aught to him? Even Gandalf feared that encounter. You forget to whom you speak, said Aragorn sternly, and his eyes glinted. Did I not openly proclaim my title before the doors of Edoras? What do you fear that I should say to him? Nay, Gimli, he said in a softer voice, and the grimness left his face, and he looked like one who has labored in sleepless pain for many nights. Pause for a second. Notice that shift there. Notice how he looked like one who has labored in sleepless pain. Hear the difference there between that and uh, between that and the kind of you know. She answered as one that likes not what is said. Um, the difference between like and as, uh, and the way that the narrator deploys those two words, is, gives a very different effect. Here, it accompanies, you know, the the like. There, he looked like one who had, you know, he who had labored in sleepless pain. Um, you know, he looked as one who had labored. Um, this, it's accompanying his own tonal shift. Nay, Gimli. Nay, my friends. Right, um, we're getting sort of a, a little touch of Strider here. Anyway, sorry, I'll continue. Nay, my friends, I am the lawful master of the stone, and I had both the right and the strength to use it, or so I judged. The right cannot be doubted. The strength was enough, barely. He drew a deep breath. It was a bitter struggle, and the weariness is slow to pass. I spoke no word to him, and in the end I wrenched the stone to my own will. That alone he will find hard to endure. And he beheld me. Yes, Master Gimli, he saw me, but in other guise than you see me here. If that will aid him, then I have done ill. But I do not think so. To know that I lived and walked the earth was a blow to his heart, I deem, for he knew it not till now. The eyes in Orthanc did not see through the armor of Theoden, but Sauron has not forgotten Isildur and the sword of Elendil. Now in the very hour of his great designs, the heir of Isildur and the sword are revealed, for I showed the blade reforged to him. He is not so mighty yet that he is above fear. Nay, doubt ever gnaws him. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> Talking about our carrying on for a few more slides, Mike uh, Thurway says, let's adventure it. Um, yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, okay. Um, yeah, Gene, what a great observation. Gene says, uh, you know, he saw me in other guys than you see me here. But he doesn't specify what guys. Yeah, and what even exactly does that mean? Um, he saw me in other guys than you see me here. Presumably that is not to be taken in any literal sense, right? Like, I dressed up for Sauron, right? Now, of course, he didn't see me in this. I put on something nice, right? Obviously, that's not what Aragorn means. Um, uh, but rather, he perceived... You know, when he looked at me, he didn't see... Uh, what you're seeing right now. You're looking at me with mortal eyes, right? You're seeing, you know, what we get described earlier on. You know, his face, you know, the, he looked as one who had labored in sleepless pain for many nights. Um, you know, you don't see your friend, like, dirty and weary and haggard. Um, that's not what he saw, is like a dirty, weary, haggard guy um, looking into the Palantir. No, he, the other guys in which he saw him was the heir of Isildur wielding the sword of Elendil. He saw him as that figure which is going to become, which already is, a figure of legend. Remember, that it's, 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 we've seen something like this before. When Aragorn reveals himself uh, to Aemir, right? Um, you know, when he reveals his name, draws his sword and gives his battle cry and says, you know, I am, uh, and, and reveals all of his name, will you aid me or thwart me? Choose swiftly. Remember that passage? Um, he's revealing himself. Um, and Aemir sort of sees him in other guys, and their response is like, dreams and legends spring to life out of the grass. Right? Well, dreams and legends, well, nightmares and legends are springing to life out of the Palantir for Sauron there. He too is seeing him in other guys. But again, there's, I think there's more to it even than that. Um, with, uh, with, think back to Gandalf way back in chapter one of the Fellowship of the Ring. Shall see Gandalf the Grey uncloaked, right? Uh, in what sense? Not in a literal sense, I hope. That would be pretty creepy. But rather, you know, he, you know, the, 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 that royalty, that power, that wisdom, which is, which is veiled, right? The royalty that's veiled that Pippin talks about in, the, in his description of Gandalf that we looked at before. Um, that veil is, 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 you know, the corner of that veil is peeled back uh, for, um, for Bilbo, for that little brief moment uh, in Bag End. And he begins to see that thing that Pippin kind of glimpses and recognizes there in Denethor's chamber. Whoa, Gandalf is something else. Right, there's, uh, there's something there that I had never seen. Aragorn's got it too. Right, there is something also about Aragorn. He knows um, this. This speaks not just to his own power, that is, to his own capacity, but to his position. Um, he's not just saying like, "I am so full of intrinsic power and awesomeness that I can basically, you know, smack Sauron around." Again, not his point. Um, but I am a figure of legend, right? I am the heir of Isildur. That means something. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily I have huge, great powers and could totally arm wrestle Sauron to a standstill. Not what it means. But um, but there is a significance in that. He has a kind of a stature because he is 
the heir of Isildur. Notice he talks about that too. Um, I am the lawful master of the stone and had both the right and the strength to use it, or so I judged. The right cannot be doubted. The strength was enough, barely. And here I think even Aragorn is showing that he recognizes, on the one hand, his position, his right, who he is intrinsically, which he doesn't have anything to do with, right? It doesn't have anything to do with his own choice. It doesn't have anything to do uh, with his own you know, sort of talents and abilities, his personal talents and abilities, and has everything to do with the position that he is in, right? The fact that he is the heir of Isildur, whether he chooses it or not, whether he wants it or not, whether he likes it or not, he is a legendary figure. Not that his choices don't matter, they'd matter very much. Um, But he didn't choose to be the heir of Isildur. He is that. Um, The right cannot be doubted. The strength was enough. Barely. Right there he speaks to his own limitations. It's not that Aragorn um, is simply being arrogant. You know, like he, he's like, ah, oh, you know, I'm pretty, I, I can totally, you know, get, Gandalf is a wuss. I can take Sauron any day. That's not, um, you know, that's not how he looks at it. He deemed that he had the strength to do it, um, and the strength was enough. But it's not just the strength. It's not just a question of the strength. It's about the right. It's about the position. It's about who he is, and that's being revealed, and that has a kind of power. That's what, um, that's you know, one of the things that we that, that that one can see when that veil is removed. And to some extent, it's the removal of that veil that Sam is perceiving when he sees Frodo um, as something else. He's seeing something beyond the mortal world. Um, it's almost like how Gandalf talks about Glorfindel to Frodo in in chapter one of book two. Remember, you know, you saw him for a minute as he is on the other side, says Gandalf. You know, one of the mighty of the firstborn, uh, in in reference to Frodo's glimpse of that gleaming white uh, figure that he sees, which is Glorfindel on the other side, an elf lord revealed in his wrath. Aragorn has another side too, right? Gandalf. Uh, has another side. Frodo is developing another side in this way. Um, and we'll look at that a little bit more when we get there. Um, but, uh, anyway. Um, okay. Good. Diego was thinking the same thing, like Frodo looking at Glorfindel. I'm going to give you props for uh, saying that five minutes ago, Diego, though I didn't see it. Very good. Um, yes. Yes. Um, Tony uh, says, I always imagined his appearance wearing Elendil's armor, Yeah, like he looks physically different. And by the way, this is one of the things that, um, for which I have great compassion for the position that Peter Jackson and company are in, in trying to do a film adaptation. Um, and when Christopher Tolkien said, as he did say, when the Lord of the Rings films came out, um, that he thinks that the Lord of the Rings is singularly ill-suited to adaptation in a in a in a in a, a visual medium like film. This is the kind of thing I think that Christopher Tolkien had in mind when he was talking about that. Because on the one hand, you know, sometimes people will hear Christopher Tolkien saying that and are like, "Dude, what are you talking about? The Lord of the Rings makes an awesome uh, visual experience." Um, yeah, but the problem is there's so many things like this. Um, how would you show that? How would you show Aragorn revealing himself in other guise to Sauron? Uh, 
uh, without making it look really hokey. There are times when Peter Jackson attempts this, but usually not. Um, and I, I think, actually, that's the better part of Valor. Um, what these kinds of things, what is conveyed in that um, exchange of, you know, that staring contest between Denethor and Gandalf, how to convey on screen um, in a visual medium, you know, what what we are getting through Pippin's uh, musings in that scene, that's really, really hard. I would say almost impossible. Um, anyway, so... Uh, yeah, good. Um, all right. Uh, let's see... Um, Interesting, Luke says that the similarities between Denethor and Aragorn uh, in this scene extend past the physical description. He, uh, Luke was pointing out earlier um, that, uh, you know, that, that description of him looking, um, looking older and, and weary, uh, you know, he's sort of looking like Denethor here. But Luke is also saying that, uh, you know, Aragorn takes on a temperament, though briefly, very similar to Denethor's permanent demeanor. Very impatient, grim, yeah, grouchy, uh, um, that snapping, you forget to whom you speak. That is very unlike Aragorn, I agree. Um, and I think it's interesting that that has happened. We get him snapping like that. Um, uh, it's not quite like, you know, again, I think of uh, the way that Frodo gets, um, you know, in the passage we haven't talked about yet, um, you know, when he, uh, when he snaps at Sam, you know, back, you thief! Uh, and then, and then immediately apologizes. Oh, Sam, what have I said? Right? There's nothing quite so extreme here with Aragorn, but it's on that spectrum, isn't it? Um, he snaps here, um, and he is adopting this lofty. I am speaking as a powerful. Per- Are you questioning me? Uh, and then he's like, you know, nay, Gimli, nay, my friends. Um, he he breaks out of it. He snaps out of it right away. Um, but there is that moment. Um, that moment of in in his moment of weakness he has uh, he has adopted that tone of power which Denethor uh, is seeming almost to hide in um, or even perhaps almost to sort of deceive himself with um, but which Aragorn does sort of uh, leave leave behind um, yeah yeah good um yeah okay let's see um all right good um <laughs> Morgan is saying now that Sauron sees bad news in the Palantir he might get to be all surly like Denethor uh, yeah yeah. Sauron get a little taste of his own medicine right being shown bad news in the in the Palantir let's see how you like it dude uh, I, I like that I like that um, okay um, I, Rebecca wants to talk about the shadow host okay talk about the shadow host here's uh aragorn S- same conversation mind you know this is uh this is this is 
you know, right there in that discussion that he's having with Legos and Gimli. Remember, he takes Legos and Gimli aside. The the other rangers are still out with the horses. He takes Legos and Gimli and says, you know, I need to, I need to speak with you. And he tells him, I looked into the Palantir, and here's what we're going to do. Um, and then he's explain, he, he quotes, the, he explains about the paths of the dead, quotes Malbeth the seer, uh, and is explaining it. And here's, this is, we, we, we join him now giving the backstory on the stone of Erech. Then Isildur, then Isildur said to their king, Thou shalt be the last king, and if the mest... <laughs> I'm losing it, I can't even read anymore. And if the west prove mightier than thy black master, this curse I lay upon thee and thy folk, to rest never until your oath is fulfilled. For this war will last through years uncounted, and you shall be summoned once again ere the end. And they fled before the wrath of Isildur, and did not dare to go forth to war on Sauron's part. And they hid themselves in secret places in the mountains, and had no dealings with other men, but slowly dwindled in the barren hills. And the terror of the sleepless dead lies about the hill of Erech, and all places where that people lingered. But that way I must go, since there are none living to help me. He stood up. Come, he cried, and drew his sword, and it flashed in the twilight hall of the burg. To the stone of Erech, I seek the paths of the dead. Come with me who will. Legos and Gimli made no answer, but they rose and followed Aragorn from the hall. Okay, first, his story of Isildur. Notice, again, you talk about stature. Boy, did Isildur have it. Um, Isildur pronounces a curse upon them. It is the power, it is the force of his word and his will that leads their spirits to haunt these mountains for millennia after they die, right? Um, Because he does not release them. They have sworn out, of course, their own oath um, is a big part of this. Uh, Of course, if you've read the Silmarillion, you're a little bit familiar with oaths and oath-breaking. There is power in that, right? Um, How, what gives Isildur the authority to, 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 you know, the power to, to put this kind of a curse on people. They've sworn, right? He is their lawful ruler. He is their lawful king. And they have sworn an oath to serve him. And they have broken that oath. Their broken oath will haunt them. Um, it, is their, it is the power of their own broken oath uh, the, and he calls it in, right? He, their king, to, he does not release them from their oath. So he is going to bind the power of their oath on them because he has the right, thinking of Aragorn's words here, he has the position, he has the right to do that. He is their king. Um, and he, you know, he is their overlord. And Isildur says, you shall be the last king, right? Um, no one is going to... You know, and, and so here, he's cursing, but he's also prophesying, Right? For, uh, you know, a, a foretelling is coming upon Isildur at the same time. Um, your oath is going to bind you. You will be the last. There will be no king after you. They're not going to need to be a king after you because you're going to stick around, right? But then he also prophesies um, what's going to. For this war will last through years uncounted, and you shall be summoned once again ere the end. Um, this again, this foretelling comes upon Isildur. So this sudden seeing of the future. We've talked already about, you know, your, your your ears opening and your mind coming awake. Aragorn and Isildur, obviously, and there's, you know, Aragorn several times um, it proves himself to be a man foresighted, to quote um, um, uh, Aemir's words. The foresight 
that comes upon Aragorn at times um, is uh, I, I I sort of am thinking about it in the context of the uh, uh, of the the um, in the context of, of what we've been talking about. It's 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 like what happens to Pippin, but a couple steps up the chain, right? Just as Pippin, in that moment when Gandalf and Denethor are looking at each other, suddenly his eyes are opened, and he sees something more than what he's looking at, right? Um, Aragorn uh, is talking to Eomir, and Eomir's like, well, I'd hope we'd ride to battle together, but now I, I can't ever hope to see you again. And all of a sudden, Aragorn sees something, right? He's like, yet I say to you, we may yet meet again, though all the hor- though all the ho- horse- hosts of Mordor lie between us, right? He just saw something there, right? His 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 ears were open to something else. He's like, "Hang on, I'm getting something," right? And it, it's not even obvious to me that Aragorn is like, "Hang on, I'm going to do prepare yourself. I'm about to deliver a prophecy," right? He just sort of gains this kind of insight. Isildur has this insight too. Uh, you you shall be summoned once again ere the end. I, I you know he he sees how this is going to go. Um, this kind of this this becomes open uh, to him as well. Um, but um, okay, um, let's see. Oh, um, Robert is asking, uh, what do I make of the shift from thou to you in Isildur's speech? Singular to plural. Thou shalt be the last king. He's addressing the king. Um, thou, which is singular, shall be the last king. Um, uh, and this curse I lay upon thee, singular, and thy folk, plural, um, to rest never until your, plural, oath is fulfilled. And you, plural, shall be summoned once again ere the end. Um, so yeah, that's a that's a number thing uh, there, Robert. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Rebecca says, I say to you is a prophecy tag. Yes, there are several phrases like that. In thinking of, um, uh, you know, one, one of the themes that we're sort of looking at in, 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 in today's class, um, the way in which the narrator conveys to us... Um, not just that we're being brought immediately into the experience of a story which is going to become a legend, but that we are hearing the the, the recounting of uh, of a legend um, as it's happening. There are a couple tags like that that we should be sensitive to. I say to you, in that hour is one of my very favorites. Um, so great was the uh, you know, but so great was the royalty of Aragorn in that hour. Um, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good, um, okay, um, notice, Aragorn is totally in the moment, right? Come, to the stone of Eric, I seek the paths of the dead, come with me who will. This is an important moment in this legend. Thus, you know, it's like the so at the beginning of that description. You could say, so did Aragorn set forth for the paths of the dead, right? That's in his own speech, he's, he's sort of conveying that. This sounds like a speech that he would make to an entire army, right? You know, to rally his troops. I, you know, to the stone of Eric, I seek the paths of the dead. Come with me, who will? Who's his audience here? 
Legolas and Gimli. The three of them are alone in a room. You know, if you, if you sort of back up and think about it, if you sort of take yourself out of the moment and think about it, you know, it's sort of imagine Legolas and Gimli kind of being like, uh, it's just, we're right here. Um, okay, we'll come with you. <laughs> come with me, who will? Meet me? Oh, sure, I'm coming. Right? I mean, it's 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 almost funny. Um in that moment, you know, Diego says they, they, you know, they just stand up and follow. They don't, they don't talk. They made no answer, but they rose and followed Aragorn from the hall. Um, uh, you know, they, 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 you know, they are committed. They are coming with him. But again, it's you know, Aragorn delivering that line, um, which again, if you remove yourself from that moment, is almost comical. Uh, you know, to turn and talk to your two friends that way. Come with me, who will? Um, and yet, the whole, you know, he is. It's again. This is not the re- this is not the narrator. This is unlike in that way. The effect is kind of like the so Gandalf and Peregrine came to the gate. Um, it's like that, but it's not the narrator. It's Aragorn himself. He himself is self-conscious, and I think he's not just talking to Legolas and Gimli here. He's also, in a sense, talking to himself. There's almost a sense in which he's talking to posterity here, right? Um, Gandalf, or Gandalf, Aragorn is narrating his own story. So did I set out, you know, thus did I set out for the paths of the dead. Um, this is, this is the moment. He has, he is, he is flipping the switch. He is taking the step. He is committing himself to this path of action. He is, he is committing himself to being the fulfillment of Isildur's prophecy, of, of, uh, of, um, Malbeth the Seer's prophecy that he was just quoting. Um, so, um, yeah. Yana says, might there be a way in which he's actually already addressing the dead, or at least preparing for it? Yeah, in a sense, do, do the dead do the dead hear him? Um, you know, are the dead already starting to gather uh, at Erech because they, now, they know he's coming? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that's literally true, but it's almost like that. Um, yeah, yeah. Diego says it may also be that he uh, he may have thought about the prophecy before, but talking about it makes it real, <laughs> so he gets all carried away. Yeah, he is enacting the prophecy. You know, he's invoking it and enacting it by saying this. Um, Come to the stone of Erech, I seek the paths of the dead, come with me who will. Um, and yet, Yana, in a sense, whether or not they hear him, in a sense, he is... Um, talking to the dead as well. Um, in a sense, I say. I, I don't think literally so. But again, the whole point is that it's he is he is delivering a summons. Um, and the summons does certainly extend out uh, past the two people that are there in the room. Okay, alright, one more and then I'll let you go. To that stone the company came and halted in the dead of night. Then Elrohir gave to Aragorn a silver horn, and he blew upon it. And it seemed to those that stood near that they heard a sound of answering horns, as if it was an echo in deep caves far away. No other sound they heard, and yet they were aware of a great host gathered all about the hill on which they stood, and a chill wind like the breath of ghosts coming down from the mountains." But Aragorn dismounted, and standing by the stone he cried in a great voice, Oathbreakers, why have ye come? And a voice was heard out of the night that answered him, as if from far away, To fulfill our oath and have peace. Then Aragorn said, The hour is come at last. 
I, now I go to Pelargir upon Anduin, and ye shall come after me. And when all this land is clean of the servants of Sauron, I will hold the oath fulfilled, and ye shall have peace and depart forever. For I am Alessar, Isildur's heir of Gondor. And with that he bade Halbered unfurl the great standard which he had brought, and behold, it was black, and if there was any device upon it, it was hidden in the darkness. Then there was silence, and not a whisper nor a sigh was heard again all the long night. Behold, what? It was black. Uh, that is definitely a what, I think. Um, okay, good, good. Um, yeah. Um, good, good. Um, Notice the way, thinking again back to the what we were just talking about in the previous passage, notice again how um, the things need to be spoken. He summoned them to the son of, er- of Erech, and they came. When he says, Oathbreakers, why have ye come? Ergorn's not seeking information there, right? I mean, it's not like, hey, what are you guys doing here, <laughs> right? He know, you know, or similarly, they could, they could, they could, if this were a completely different work, give him a snarky response, right? Oathbreakers, why have you, because you called us, you dimwit, why do you think we've come, right? Um, again, that's not what's going on here. This exchange is not about the seeking and gaining of information. This is about a speech act, as Robert uh, calls it, a speech act which is enacting the prophecy. Both of both sides have come to fulfill this prophecy. Um, they've come to close this loop. Um, and, and, and it needs to be spoken. Why have ye come? Um, to fulfill our oath and have peace. Then Aragorn said, The hour is come at last. The prophecy is here fulfilled. Um, you know, this day is this prophecy fulfilled in your ears. Um, I'm here. Um, now I go to Anduin, and ye shall come after me. The, 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 tense, the tenses and moods are really interesting when we look at, you know, when Aragorn talks like this. And ye shall come after me. Notice he doesn't, he's, this is not a request, right? Um, he's speaking in the future tense. You will come, you, you are going to come after me. Statement of uh, indicative in the future. And when all this land is clean of the servants of Sauron, I will hold the oath fulfilled. Uh, I love that, that, the phrase, clean of the servants of Sauron. Um, I, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree. It, it is like ritual. Um, there is a there is an explicitly ritualistic uh, sense of this um, that the, that act of the prophecy can't be fulfilled by accident. Like this prophecy can't be fulfilled by accident. Some prophecies are and can be. Um, uh, you know when Eowyn. You know it, I, I'm cause, uh, the, thinking of the accidental fulfillment of prophecies immediately makes me think of Macbeth. Um, you know, that uh, uh, 
I, Macduff didn't really have any idea that the irregularity of his birth had anything to do uh, with his overcoming Macbeth, and he wasn't thinking about that. Um, when Malcolm told them to cut down branches from the trees in Burnham Wood and hold them up overhead to disguise their numbers as they marched on uh, on Dunsinane, he didn't have any idea that he was fulfilling a prophecy in doing so. Um, that, of course, makes me think of Eowyn uh, and, uh, and uh, the prophecy that no living man shall, uh, shall kill the Witch King, but we'll come back to that um, next time. Um, but this is not that kind of prophecy, right? Um, and it's clear, even from Aragorn's previous description, that this is not that kind of prophecy. Um, this is a prophecy that needs to be self-consciously, you know, he, self-consciously fulfilled, because it's about an act of will. It's about the keeping of the oath. Oathbreakers, why have ye come? Uh, the fact that he labels them that in order to prompt them to counteract that. Um, they want to they want to find peace. In order to find peace, they need to cease to be what they are. They are the un you know they are the the the, the restless and unquiet dead. Why are they restless? Because they are oathbreakers. Um, but they would like to undo that. They would like to fulfill their oath and have peace, and they need to say it. Uh, you know, they need to take what amounts to a second oath. And Aragorn challenges them. Uh, you know, ye shall come. I I go, and ye shall come after me. I go, present tense. Uh, ye shall come, future tense, after me. Um, if you do that, then I will hold the oath fulfilled, for I am Elessar, Isildur's heir of Gondor. Um... For I am a lesser. Uh, because I am a lesser, this is going to happen. Because I am who I am. And then he unfurls the great standard. And as uh, a couple of you, Luke and Alyssa, at the same time, were both uh, uh, pointing at the same thing. And it, it's exactly the thing that I love about this, too. The word behold seems so funny. He bade Halbert unfurl the great standard w- which he had brought, and behold, it was black. And if there was any device upon it, it was hidden in the darkness. And behold, you couldn't see it. <laughs> that seems so odd. The weight, the, 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 the interjection of that behold places so much weight. This is the big reveal, right? Keep it, you know, keep it hidden a while longer, he says to Halberd. You know, bear it still a while. Don't unfurl yet. This is now the moment that 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 you know the standard that uh, that that uh, I almost said Eowyn that Arwen has made uh, for uh, for for Aragorn is now being revealed. He's declared himself for I am a lesser Isildur's heir of Gondor, and he unfurls the standard, and behold, it's dark. Really, you couldn't see. It's a black standard. It's dark. You really could behold you. It's it's absence. Behold, it's invisibility. Um, and uh, it's uh, we get, so we we get it both ways, right? As uh, Alyssa's pointing out, the dead can see it apparently, but it preserves the reveal for the reader until the Harland. Um, uh, talk about having your cake and eating it too, right? He gets to have this moment where Aragorn is revealed as 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 king. The, you know, if you want to know, you know, when does Aragorn? Um, come back, you know, when does the return of the king really start? Well, to some extent, you could say, um, you know, it's when he rides into battle under the standard, you know, on the, the, the at the Pelennor Fields later on. Yeah, that's the return of the king, you know, in one sense. Um, you could say that it was when he took the, um, 
when he takes the Palantir and, uh, you know, asserting the right and using all the strength that he has challenges Sauron. Yeah, you could say that too. But, you know, I think you could make a case that here it is. This is like, this is day one of Aragorn's kingship right here. In, you know, in one sense, not you know, officially crowned yet, of course. But again, this is the moment when he reveals himself. He pulls back that veil again and shows himself in other guise. Um, I am a lessar. Unfurl the kingly standard. So he's revealed himself, but we don't see it. Um, we, it's almost like the 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 position in which Tolkien's narrative puts us as readers in this moment. It's almost I want to compare it to watching a scene in a play from backstage, right? You're, you're, you're backstage, and the lights, the stage lights are shining up on the actors from the front, but you're behind, so you see them shadowy, because you don't see the lights on them. Um, and they're not looking at you. They're, their back is to you, and they're looking out, and you can see the faces of the people looking towards them. Um, but you're not the target audience. Um, you are, you know, you're sort of peeking in on something, that isn't really for you or about you, and you can't really see everything perfectly, but you can tell something awesome is going on, right? Because you can see, you can kind of see what's going on on stage, and you can definitely see the reaction of the audience, who is facing towards you. That seems to me kind of like what's happening here. Um, we are sort of looking at the dead here. The dead are the audience. They're the, they're the intended audience. They can see. We can't really see what's going on, but we can see the silhouettes. We can see the outline. We get a sense of what's going on here, um, even though for us, it's only a foreshadowing. Um, okay. Um, a whole bunch of comments that I wish uh, I could come back and uh, get back to, but um, uh but I really should let everybody go. It's been over two hours now. Um, I uh, I have more things I want to talk about, but I'll I'll save them. I'll either talk about them next time or um, save them for a bonus session afterwards. But uh, anyway, thanks uh, for all of your wonderful comments and observations, um, and I uh, um, I will look forward to. Um, I will look forward to next week. Um, we will be... I, th I think... I'm forgetting now. I think we're at the earlier time for next week, um, if I am recalling correctly, um, that we're going to be uh, doing the first of our more European-friendly time uh, for people who are less dedicated, Yana, than you are. Um, uh, no, wait, no, that's not next week. I'm sorry. Next week... I'm sorry, I forgot. Next week is... Uh, is Halloween, so that's why next Thursday is Halloween. So we're going to do Friday night, and then next the week after that is the Thursday. The first Thursday we're in the afternoon. Um, so okay, right. Next, uh, yeah. So there will be a Euro time slot in t uh, uh, for the for the, for the third class, uh, Yana. Um, next week we can't do a Euro time slot on Fridays because that conflicts with uh, one of the Mythgard classes with Tom Shippey's philology class. Um, so uh, so we'll definitely. Uh, we don't. We, we we can't do it then. So anyway, so next Friday night. See you guys next Friday night for the big uh, chapters. I mean, of course the um, 
these coming chapters are not really the climax of the book, um, but uh, but they're pretty big. So I, I look forward to talking about those with you, and I will try to keep from uh, just breaking down into helpless uh, uh, weeping while reading them. So anyway, thanks a lot, everybody. I will see hopefully many of you next week. Good night. <laughs>